Welcome to the Finding Refuge podcast. My name is Michelle Cassandra Johnson, and I am so glad you're here. This podcast emerged from work based in the exploration of collective grief and liberation. It exists to remind us about all the ways we can find refuge during unsettling and uncertain times. I am so excited about today's interview with Reggie Hubbard. I've never met Reggie in person, but I met him at the Citizen Well Summit in the summer of 2020, August of 2020. He gave a a speech and shared with us, and it touched me so deeply. And since then, I've been following him, listening to him, and he has so much wisdom to impart at this time. So let me tell you a little bit more about Reggie. Reggie's yoga and meditation journey was born of curiosity, forged in adversity, and has become a lesson in surrender to the miracles that exist in commitment to personal peace and well-being. Adopting yogic discipline has saved his life, and he is committed to sharing these practices far and wide to help others, regardless of their race, identity, orientation, or economic status. He has studied extensively with many amazing teachers along the way, ever mindful that the best teacher is the eternal student. Reggie is a 500-hour certified yoga teacher and the founder and chief serving officer of Active Peace Yoga. Through Active Peace Yoga, he offers asana and meditation classes to help others nurture peace of mind, creativity, equanimity in spirit, and physical health helping people nurture well-being as foundational rather than an afterthought. His practice combines mindfulness, yogic philosophy, somatic awareness, refined concentration and discipline to help his students approach life with more ease and balance. As part of his studies, he has authored a thesis entitled Yoga and Spiritual Activism, Serving Humanity from a Sense of Devotion and Love, and has also been a featured speaker on new consciousness, racial justice, and civic engagement for leading wellness publications, podcasts, and platforms. In addition to his yoga teaching practice, Reggie has held many senior strategic and logistical roles across a variety of fields, ranging from global marketing, digital and community organizing, government relations, international education to presidential campaigning. He recently left a senior position as a leading progressive political strategist, regularly interacting with elected officials on Capitol Hill and managing relationships, impact, and communications among the broader progressive movement. Reggie has taught members of Congress, congressional staff, leading progressive organizations and individuals from all walks of life. Reggie's dharma sits at the intersection of bringing more peace and balance to activists, guiding the wellness community toward being more engaged, concerned citizens, and enhancing the well-being of all walks of life. Achieving this balance is how we catalyze transformative change in our society, which we are desperately in need of at this moment. Enjoy this interview with Reggie Hubbard. Hi, Reggie. I know we already said hello, but now we're recording, so hello. Hello, hello. 
It is so good to see you again and so good to be in this space. And thank you for, for saying yes. Thank you for offering. I couldn't say yes if you didn't offer. So thank you for the invitation. Yeah. And I um, remember, I feel like the first time I was in community with you was in the Citizen Well Summit. And I heard you speak and was just, I feel like forever changed. And um, after that, I know we talked, but I was just like, who is this person, right? Like, who is this person? Where's this coming from? Um, That's how I felt just so, um, what you said resonated so deeply and I will never forget that, that moment. So I'm glad that we connected in that way. Likewise, like it's one of the things where, and, and I've talked to you about this before, but I, I'm very transparent in my teaching practice. Um, I didn't plan on teaching. I didn't, right? Like they don't really make space for us, right? They don't make space for black and brown. They don't make space for BIPOC folks, especially if you got an opinion. Like they may make space for someone who like toes the party line, but like for someone who is just like, this is what I got and this is what I see and this is what I feel. Um, up until the pandemic, really, for me anyway, there really wasn't a space. And so I started teaching for real, for real in April 2020. And um, then Brother Floyd got lynched. And I was just like, oh, I, I got it. Oh, okay. Wow. <laughs> right? So I went from like launching like a feeble little website on April 2nd, then a month and a half later, I'm like, oh, wow. So, and you know, one of the things that I talk, I've been talking a lot about recently is that um, they, it's white supremacist norms to keep us silent. And so I've had to unlearn those norms and it's challenging. Um, but the way that I've gotten past the challenge is just to like lay, lay my soul bare and just kind of be like, here is what I feel from the heart. You can never go wrong when you speak from the heart. Like if it's overly analytical, it doesn't necessarily land. But if it's like compassionate and rooted in like your wisdom, but also like I carry my ancestors with me all over the place. So everything I hope to offer is not just rooted in my lived experience, but my acquaintance with the lived experience of the people that came before me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, um, what you just said about you weren't planning to teach on your website on April early April and then a month and a half later, you were being called into something different and in this bigger way. I'm wondering what what you were being called into, like how you understand that. You're being called up, I right. feel like. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. I started practicing yoga. So it, this is a very auspicious week for me. So like um, my yoga birthday, most people don't talk about it this way, but like the practice of asana and then the corresponding philosophical implementation of yoga in my life just changed everything. Right. So November 9th, 2014 um, was the first asana class I took. And I took it um, because I was in like a we often we I'm speaking in the voice of like black overachievers, um, black overachievers try arduously to fit in. Right. You know what I mean? Like I went to Yale. Right. And then, you know, double majored at Yale. And then I went and got a master's degree in Europe in like European economy and international strategy and did all these things. And so I'm thinking naively um, that in the Obama administration, that a trilingual Yale graduate who has a master's degree in the European economy with an administration talking about globalization, I can find something. Right. Right. Child, I got nothing. And I put in all the chips to get these two gigs 
uh, one was to be in the um, education department and one was to be um, international education and the other one's the Department of Education. So either Arnie Duncan's deputy chief of staff or deputy assistant secretary of international education. You know, I had like people in the first lady's office call on my behalf. Like I had the vice president's team call on my behalf because I was super in that world. I made it to the top two for both, got neither. Oh my God. Right. So like that was like the professional heartbreak. Um, I, I equate it to like you propose to someone and they're like, nah, I'm good. You're like, right. whoa, but so I had to leave politics. Like I had to leave Washington. I was just like, I can't be here no more. Like I, I, I burned all my chips and I used to play poker way, way back in the day. I pushed all my chips in and lost the hand. I'm busted. I gotta go. And so I went through the dark night of the soul um, a bit, but luckily a year and a half prior to, um, I'd started like viewing my wellness as sacred. Um, this is before like yoga, before Buddhist practice and all these things. Um, I did major in existential philosophy in college. So I told like overachiever, like, hi, like you look in the dictionary, it's like, right. So um, I had started like noticing patterns of self-destruction um, in my life. And when I didn't get both of those jobs, like I noticed like for a week, I was like, oh, the worst. I, I went into that whole thing. And then for whatever reason, um, higher self started speaking and was just like, you know, do you get it? Right. This isn't for you. Right. And I'm like, okay. So I set about on a course of creative self-exploration is what I called it. So I had, I had some rules, right? The rules were like, I'm only going to do things that lower my blood pressure, are fun, and um, are, that I've never really done before. And on the 9th of November, a friend of mine was like, Reggie, you should come to yoga with me. And I'm like, blood pressure, fun creative. All right. And um, little did I know what would unfold, right? So it started out as a practice of curiosity. Then it became a practice of necessity because I moved from Washington, D.C. to Denver um, for the job of my dreams, which became a nightmare super quick, like day five. Um, these upper class white women just flipped on me funny and were just like, yeah, so we hired you for this, but we want you to do this. And I'm like, oh, and so I'm from the East Coast and um, I've got Southern roots, but like I went to Yale and kicked it in New York. So like I'm nice, but like that, that and I'm from like the Baltimore area. Right. So like the wire was formed in Baltimore. We get serious real quick up here. Right. And so I heard and felt that dude coming out and I'm like, yo, you curse these people out. You really going to you're going to catch it. So that's when yoga went from a practice of curiosity to a practice of necessity. And the necessity begat sadhana. I now know what it is. And sadhana begat abhyasa, right? So, like, I got into all, like, the discipline. And then, you know, like, it's a well-known story now, but they fired me via text message. I thanked them for the adversity they put me through because I learned grace. And then, next thing you know, I'm on Bernie Sanders' campaign. So, like, November 9th is sacred because, like, the first yoga class I took basically exploded into a discipline, which I now revere as like spiritual practice and borderline martial art, right? So, and the 11th, 
Um, I got my 200-hour certification from uh, Faith Hunter's studio, formerly known as Embrace, which she closed in September. Um, but, you know, I had no intention of teaching Michelle at all, right? You know, because I didn't see a space for me. I was just like plus-size Black dude. Um, and like I worked on in the heart of the resistance at the time against the Trump era. And I was like, I can't make it to a studio to teach regularly. So I was like a sub or whatever. But then I, you know... Um, I was like, I took my 200 hour very, very seriously. So I took like vows of clean speech and like wise action and all these things, all of my other um, colleagues and, and, you know, that wasn't for them. That's what I was called to do. And so when I saw an opportunity, uh, similar to this, like when I saw an opportunity to get my cert on 11, 11, 2018, I was like, you know what, let's see. And so the 9th of November and the 11th of November are sacred. And like in the seven years since I took my first asana class, in the three years since I got my 200-hour cert, just the transformative nature of these practices when done in discipline with an open heart just blows my mind. And I say all that to say that it's an honor to be here um, in reverence to the path that I've been placed on and to talk about it in service to you and to other people. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing some about your path and, and journey and the transition from yoga um, being connected to curiosity and then necessity, right? And also the deepening of study then, right? When we understand, oh, this is necessary. <laughs> we're like deep in it and this is saving us. Oh, we're, we're like deep in it. And so I appreciate you, you naming that because I think um, so many people I come into contact with here, I grew up in the US, I grew up in the South in Richmond, Virginia. So many folks really think about yoga as the physical postures, right? The asana part of it and are not encouraged to study the other parts of the path and not thinking about it as a necessity or not thinking about it as transformative to meet the times. And I know that that's what you, you know, that's what you do. That's what you're about and calling people into that. So thank you for, for sharing that with me. Yeah, the other part of it I'll mention quickly is that um, no one talks like this. Right. Right. No, no one talks about their yoga journey and revering their birthday and creating sacred ceremony around like transitional, transformational moments. Um, and no shade. Look, some people view yoga as activity. I view it and teach it as discipline. Like I said, I revere the practice. I revere the sages and the saints that came before me and know that I'm a steward of these wisdom practices. And hopefully the people that encounter it with me leave lifted um, and in, in inquisitive as opposed to just like, oh man, I feel great. Like you feel great, but why? Why do you feel great? What is it about it that makes you feel great? And how can you share that with people? Um, I learned that, like I said, from necessity, because I was like, if I don't do something, Baltimore Reggie is going to come out and I'm going to lose his job and I'm going to lose all his money. Um, so to the point that we were talking about earlier, I found... I can say it now because I can see it with the uh, the benefit of hindsight. I found refuge in sadhana. I found refuge in like the discipline. Um, the the activity wasn't refuge. Like like it didn't matter. Like I had to find a way to create sacred space to process all the stuff that I was under. Um, and that and that's what discipline practice gave to me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I know earlier we were before I started recording talking about the different communities you're, you're connected with and, and part of and talking about um, in some of the Buddhist spaces that you're moving through 
that people are finding refuge in the practice, right? And maybe even discipline of the practice, but also using it as an escape, right? I don't know if that's discipline, you know, that's why I'm sort of like hesitating, but like bypassing in this way. Um, and I'd love to hear more, more about that. I mean, I, I talk about spiritual bypassing a lot. And um, when I learned about it and learned about John Wellwood being in a Buddhist Sangha, and him talking about, you know, a hazard of this practice is that we're trying to transcend, right? We're trying to become enlightened, but people lean into that as a way to avoid what needs to heal. And I'd love to hear from your perspective um, more about this. Yeah, one of the, uh, thank you for the question. One of the blessings of the rapid ascendancy of my practice, but also my teaching practice is that like, it's been meteoric. And in that way, like I've come to rub elbows spiritually and otherwise um, with a lot of folks. And Lama Rod Owens gave a talk in, in a sangha that I'm a part of, um, held by Roshi Joan Halifax. And um, he was talking about how Dharma practice was the kindest thing he had ever witnessed because everything that he had experienced up until the point, that point in his life had been violence, either tacitly or overtly. And so um, the, in, the recognition and the recitation that we all suffer um, was a kind invitation that he found refuge in, right? So that wisdom allowed his experience to be validated. And through his, through the acknowledgement of his suffering through Dharma, uh, capital D, um, it allowed him to hold space for his healing, right? Like, like what you talked about. Um, I find a lot of folks in Sangha that either I lead or participate in talk about, well, I know nothing and I'll just meditate more you know, but you choose not to see, right? That's willful ignorance. That's escapism. Like that's not refuge. Refuge is finding safe harbor in the storm of life. And then once you get the rest that you require from refuge, using that and then re-entering the storm, right? You know, you ride out the storm, but like when it's still sunny, when it's sunny outside, or sometimes, you know, in my practice, like, I've been called to go back in the storm. You know, like I worked in the heart of Capitol Hill during impeachment. And so I found refuge in these practices. Um, at, at one point, um, I was very, 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 very involved in impeachment. And I would wear like all my power mala beads or whatever. And I had to because one day, Devin Nunez came and Mark Meadows, like all these, like the murderer's row of Republican ridiculousness, uh, came and Mark Meadows touched my shoulder, Michelle. And I was just like, ooh, 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 ooh. right? So I took off the beads and started counting. Like, and I was just like, this is refuge, right? Because like, I'm like, nigga, who you talk like, you know what I mean? I'm just like, oh no, you like that? Just cause Elijah Cummins think you cool. You know what I mean? Like I was like, that's where I was in my head. But immediately because of the discipline, I was just like, okay. I wore like a mala that was um, pyrite, tiger's eye and obsidian. Right. So protective, but also hella grounding. And I was just like, I need to throw these now. And I, then I stayed in the and I stayed in the hearing and watched. Right. So that is refuge as opposed to, oh, but he, you know, like and I'm hopeful. And I talk about this in both my yogic practice and Buddhist teaching is that um, the times are asking us to be engaged. They are demanding that we create connection. They are demanding that we transcend the limitations of past experience, right? Either from a trauma lens that we experience or that the trauma that's visited upon us. And you can only transcend trauma, shame, and those sorts of things 
through refuge, not through escape. Like through escape, you're, it's a, it creates a preponderance um, that leads to stasis and not transformation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love the way you just talked about refuge. And that is connected to being in the storm or being in the heat of the, the moment. And like, that's when, when we're engaging the practice, but no, we need to stay. If it's a space where we right. need to stay, right? And that's our right. practice in Dharma at that time. And it's making me think about what you just named, like we need to stay as a collective, like we need to figure out what we're gonna do right now. We don't really mm-hmm. have time um, to, to like wait. And so many people know exactly what's going on now, but as you name, choose to escape or look away from it. And some folks have the choice to do that. Um, but right. there's and so much- People in, like you and me don't. Yeah, we don't. And there's so much in the practice that teaches us to stay. Um, but so much in dominant culture that says, and privilege that says, look away, right? Mm-hmm. You started to talk about this time. I, I keep saying like this moment, but we've been in this forever. Like we've been here for a long time in so many ways. And yet we like were in a pandemic that I, that felt new to my body, right? I hadn't experienced something yeah. like it. So I keep trying to do like, it's new, but it's old. I keep doing right. that, stripping me up because I'm like, time, what is what's happening yeah Yeah, like it's not real but it it, you know something's different and I'm curious to know like how you understand what is happening now because I think something that struck me when I first heard you speak is I just felt like you had a deep understanding from different realms that stuff was going down like that's what I felt when I heard you and I'm just curious what is happening how do you understand this what is needed at this time just kind of a big question Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I mean, the um, one is that um, I'll speak about it from how my experience of being called up, and then 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 I'll an- then I'll answer your question specifically. So I, um, whether it be in the, I've been in the private sector. I used to work in glo- global marketing, um, super creative, all these sorts of things. In my twenties, all my colleagues were in their fifties, right? So just like some weird, like not weird, but just like. I've always been ahead to some extent. It's, it's, it's as if like the me that I'm getting to know better, like the capital S self is just like, we're going to use this moment now. Right. And so like, like I've, there's always been like a period of like rapid ascendance. Um, but I would always come up on the edge of um, supremacist norms. Right. So in my global marketing job, when I was just like, so why did you take away my uh, bonus structure? And like, why am I being paid X percent less than this guy? Right. Then they would be like, well, that's just the way it is. And then I would have to be like, so permission to speak freely. Uh, Yeah. Okay. So the 13th, 14th and 15th amendments outlaw chattel slavery. So please know that I'm here by choice, not because I have to be here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yeah. Cat got your tongue. This brother's smart. So like, like, like I would just like speak to that. Um, But then I had to resign and go do something else Um, or um, in the political work. So I read I I work for Move On um, for all the resistance and left quite candidly and people get their feelings hurt. But if you don't want people to talk about them, talk about you, then treat them better. Mm -hmm. Right. So um, I have a pedigree that is senior management and I took a junior role to be in service to the times. But when we won, I was just like, so I did my service. I need to be my full self. And people are like, well, we don't know if that's possible. And I'm like, so did you not see the education that I bring and all the study that I've done here? 
So you have created a false choice and that false choice, I'm going to trump that, no pun intended. <laughs> the real choice is whether or not I want to be here anymore. Oh, uh, yeah. So I, all throughout my career until I've stepped into this teaching dharma, um, I've been asked to be quiet or forced to be quiet. And when the pandemic created that rip in the curtain, that wrinkle in time, I felt as though I was called to speak, not just for me, but for my ancestors that couldn't speak. And for the stories that I can tell that not many people can tell, because I felt like I've been an understudy for a while. Right. So and then when the pandemic shifted and I was pushed into teaching and like shepherding impeachment and all these things, it was as if like I went from understudy to in front of the camera like that. And so if you had been an understudy for 15, 16, 45, hundreds of years, and you're called on, you got to perform, mm-hmm. right? So that's my experience of having been called up. So when Brother Floyd got killed, I looked around and saw no one talking about it, right? One, but two, talking about it in a way that was both acknowledging what is happening, why it's happening, and how we get past it, should you choose to. And so I believe that we have been confronted, not only in the Trump era, but like all the things that have happened in the past, let's say five years or so. Um, Here is what's really here. So now what? Mm -hmm. I'm of the opinion that once you see it, and I'll talk about it in the context of that. I used to weigh 350 pounds. And I don't mean that to, like, I'm still a big dude. I'm not saying that anything about, like, but I, it was a health problem for me. Mm-hmm. And I looked at it that way. Like, I was 38 years old. I looked in the mirror and had, like, a, a CTJ come to Jesus with me. And I was like, brother, look here. On one side of your family, you got sugar. Your uncle, your favorite uncle had a heart attack at 55 and he was in much better shape than you. So you drink too much, smoke too much, too too many cigarettes and you are like obese. You going to stay, you going like you going to keep this up? So I believe that like in a broader sense, we as a society are being confronted like that. You're like you got sugar on this side, you got bad hearts on this side. If you keep this up, you're going to be a diabetic with heart problems mm-hmm. and or you can course correct and get on a path towards healing. I believe that we're in a similar situation now. Some of us are taking the mantle seriously and 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 to keep from a reckoning, maybe because you know this from like Vedic studies and also other studies, <laughs> you're you're given a chance. Then if you choose not to do that, the cycle comes. And then when it comes back around, whew, mm-hmm. right? So I feel, I grew up in the church. I've shared that before, but like I now understand lamentations, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? I understand Jeremiah. I understand those prophetic voices. I'm not saying I profess not what I'm saying, but what I am saying is just like, this is what's happening. Yeah. Right. Y'all going around like this. I can't see your hands are over your face. (laughs) That's why you can't see. So I believe that when I got called up, it was to speak 
not just for me, but my ancestors, but most importantly, people who look like us from marginalized experience that until the pandemic and Brother Floyd and those sorts of things were either politely ignored or <laughs> violently suppressed. Mm -hmm. And I've said this before too. It's like, now that I got the mic, I won't shut up. Right. Not my job. My job is to speak. Yeah, so that that's where that ends. So no one else is really talking that way. Um, I started teaching to serve the pandemic, but also to backtrack a bit, um, I understand the return on investment from discipline practice, right? So I had I didn't know then, but I now know that the years of daily blah blah blah, like like all this stuff, was when the pandemic happened or these things happened. I was able to respond with peace which is the abiding piece of discipline practice. And from that piece, you serve. You know, many people, to go back to the bypass conversation, only view practice from the standpoint of, um, I'm grounded, so I'll talk about it from the chakra system, right? So I'm grounded, then I'm creative, then I got the fire in the belly, then I'm super compassionate, and then I'll speak wisdom, peace, ah, transcendent. In you're not a spirit, you're a spirit in a body. So like when you have that transcendence, how can you embody that? Mm -hmm. And how can that embodiment be in service to the times? I believe that I'm the embodiment, you know, I have a, a t-shirt on my wall over here. It says, I'm my ancestors' wildest dreams. Like one of my teachers called me the karmic destroyer. Like, you know what I mean? So like the chains that um, used to hold my people back, either like my lineage or just like people who look like me, I'm coming in with like Thor's hammer and being like, nah. Right. So, and that's the other part I would say to answer your question is that like people like us in these times, if we don't swing the hammer, or as one of my colleagues called it, like dance with swords, right? So I think my practice is a bit of a dance, but like she was like, no, Reggie, you dance with swords though. Like, because like, it's beautiful, but like you cut through the swords of, like you cut through the veil of ignorance and it's beautiful. But at the same time, if someone's on some craziness, you're like snip, snip, right? As opposed to, oh, that's fine. It's not fine. That's crazy. You're causing violence and harm. And that's not what the times require. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Everything you said. And when you said, I talk about the spirit and the body too. Like I know I'm bigger than this body, but I'm in a body. So I have some responsibility to like do something at this time in this body, knowing I'm bigger than it, right? Like that's the, that's what the practice has taught me. And my ancestors, my grandmother in particular taught me that, like, I understand this. So that resonated so, so deeply and just speaking what you said, like telling the truth. Um, when, when skill in action first came out and I was like driving across the country moving from Portland back to North Carolina and stopping in at studios teaching about it, people were like, thank you for telling the truth. And I was just like, yeah, like, but why aren't people telling the truth? You know, it's kind of like, why haven't people been telling the truth? I mean, it was affirming, like people were saying, thank you for seeing me. That's what they were saying and continue to. But it's, it's just so interesting when that happens. Thank you for telling the truth with such clarity. And I'm kind of like, well, you just need to look around and and see the truth, right? Like see it and then touch in and notice how it makes you feel. And then how are you implicated in it? And then how do you want to respond? But I understand, for, I mean, that's a process of unlearning and learning, right? And that's where practice can, can support us. But in what you said about like dancing with swords or 
the way that you work and move, um, that there's such clarity and such calling in to like, we need to be with what is right. right. And then we you need to feel it. Right. Yeah. And it makes you me, can. yeah. It makes me wonder what he, like, what do you think the healing looks like then? Mm -hmm. You know, the two things I'll say, one is that um, I love what you said about truth. Truth doesn't need us to support it. It needs us to speak it. The truth can stand on its own. But, you know, I don't know if, I, if I've shared this with you. My gift to myself for resigning from Move On is I bought 100 of these. So I bought 100, like, antique singing bowls. Like, there is a beautiful sound here. But it only, it only happens when you bring, when, when, when you enact it. Not a yoga, right? Like, so, like, there, the sound is here. But it's not expressed until, like, friction comes. So, similarly, the truth is here. The truth is there, but people like you and I, we're called to speak it and then it will do what it does. Like, like one thing I'll share quickly is that I recently lost my soul brother cousin uh, two weeks ago. And it's the first death I've had of someone like my age that I was so viscerally connected to. And I held a sangha on Dia de los Muertos um, talking openly about grief um, and using that experience to share from my heart, to hold space for collective healing. And um, people were like, thank you so much for that. And I was just like, we all grieve. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm just the one that spirit was just like, hold this space. But we're all going through something. We're all going through something. So that's a good segue to the answer. What does the healing look like? Is um, for those of us who are teachers, most most importantly, if you call yourself teacher, like I was called teacher and rejected it. <laughs> but like um, when you call yourself teacher, it's not about the maintenance of status quo. It's about creating conditions for transformation. That's what teaching is, right? Creating conditions for assimilation of wisdom so people can be better off, right? So healing to me looks like that sangha in Dia de los Muertos, right? So like through a Zoom call, we had 60 people talking openly about something that we all go are going through. Those of us who are conveners, whether they be yogic or Buddhist or whatever, whatever convener you are, we need to hold space. Well, first of all, do your practice so you can hold the space. Because that's the one thing that my cousin's death taught me is that like, I'm stronger than I knew that I was, but the only way that I felt the strength is because of that concussive shock. Yeah. Right. So the healing to me looks like stay in your practice, do it. Then when, not if, when called upon, then avail yourself to what you're being called to do. And then just be blessed by what happens because of that. Michelle, the the, the emails and um, texts or whatever that I got from that particular sangha, I mean, other ones too, but this one's because it's the most present because it was last week. The one person told me that they never grieved their mother because they were angry at them because she died of an overdose. And the sangha allowed her to see compassion on her mother, which was the first step to, like, I'm like, yeah, what? but that wouldn't have happened if I didn't hold the space. Mm -hmm. And so this is where like the amalgamation of like my Baptist and yogic and Buddhist come where on the other side of this body or whatever, I don't want to have the conversation of why didn't you hold that class? You know, you like you, you kept so-and-so from getting that wisdom or you kept so-and-so from getting that healing. If I would have chickened out, 
of holding that song, God, no one wants to talk about grief and death. 50, 60 people and the, and the reverberation of their healing would not have transpired. So healing to me looks like those of us who are in the healing arts doing it, well, one, doing like what we're doing, like connecting and holding each other down. So that's first. Second is like, once we know that we're not alone, because this can be a lonely path, right? Like once we know that we're not alone, stand firmly with your colleagues at your back and your ancestors and open up vulnerably to hold space for the truth of the moment. And then in holding space for the truth of the moment, allow whatever divine wisdom is meant to channel through you to channel because you're the only, sometimes you're the only frequency that that wisdom can come through. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was talking about that earlier, the frequency part of it and the that we have different medicine to bring forth and how amazing it is to hear about the medicine people are bringing forth, like all the different medicine that's needed at this time and that we can be conduits for that and channels for that. Um, so that that really resonated with me. And, and I, I talk a lot about grief too and know like, I mean, I know part of my dharma is to be here and talk about the things that are like hidden, right? That are no like to deal with, right? underground that people are like, I don't want to, I'm feeling it, but I don't want to talk about it. I know that's what I do. And all, I mean, I was a therapist for years. It's what it's like, that's in me to do that. So I, I feel that from you too. Like the speaking is so deep in this conversation today and the necessity like to speak and to, you know, really align with the medicine and our dharma and what we're what we're meant to do. So I love your vision of, of healing. I'll give you another example really quick is that um, I'm the color line. So I'm sure you're very similar. And that like, I grew up in the burbs and went to Yale. And so like, I'm, and, but my family is like Chitlin Southern that brews moonshine. Right. So like, like I'm all of it. And um, I gave a uh, talk recently with a whole bunch of upper-class white women in a a 500-hour yoga teacher training about race, diversity, inclusion, and stuff. And Michelle, this is how I started. Um, I was just like, all right, y'all, who really wants to talk about this? (laughs) Yes. And and people were like, I'm like, look, I don't want to talk about it because, like, I don't think white people care. And you don't want to talk about it because you get in the fields when black and brown people tell their truth, right? And then people are, I'm like, yeah. So now that we've, now that that's on the table, can we have an honest conversation and move forward? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I was like, the dharma I've been given is to bring like the things that no one cares about, right? Or or you care about it, but you don't want to talk about it. So race, inclusion, social justice, grief and loss, like that's. Those are like four of the five things that I've been called to, to, to bring forth. And no one necessarily wants this. Like no one responds well to, you know, you need to pay attention. You know, America, everyone knows America's racist. Every Even racists know America's racist because how'd you get all your stuff? Right. Really? Right. Right. So if you can like puncture the balloon of willful ignorance or shame or fear, those sorts of things, then just talk about it. That's what I found. Mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. I love that you began in that way. Like, I see you. You don't want to talk about it. It makes you uncomfortable. And I don't either because I, I don't want Like, I'm tired of talking about this. What else needs to be said about it? <laughs> you know what I mean? But now that the, I'm sure you like blew their minds. I'm sure they were just like, what is this is flipping the entire script. I don't understand what's going on right now. And it, it created conditions for a pretty fruitful conversation. But it, well, it was funny. Like, I wish... 
I wish that I had a picture of like the faces when I said that. I was like, who who wants to talk about this? You know, Kango on Mala's out, just like, uh, yeah, that's what I thought. I don't either. Oh, uh, yeah, right. Now that we don't want to deal with this, we have to. And so let's do it in a way that's edifying and moves the conversation forward, as opposed to me putting up a bunch of slides and you cutting off your compu- computer and talking to your kids about tomorrow at school. Right. That's right. No. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that. I um have one more question for you, and it's yeah. about your um soul brother. I think that's what you said. Who? Yeah, how you just Corey? I was going to ask you what his name was, and I'm curious to know. One, I'm sorry for your loss, and Thank I you. don't know Corey, but. I'm listening to you. So grateful for Corey's life. I'll say that. And my question is like, what, what lesson, what's like the greatest lesson Corey taught you? So we were, are, because time, I mean, we don't like, you were talking about it before, like time, right? We are soul brothers that were um, the cousins that defied norms in our family. So I come from a very traditional Southern family in uh, Natural Bridge, Lexington, Roanoke, Virginia. Not Burr, Virginia. You know, uncle went to WNL, was one of the first black people to go to WNL. Aunt went to UVA, right? First black women to go to UVA. So we's from Virginia. And I was, and I'm grateful for the way that I was brought up, right? I was brought up, you know, do right and people, you know, Protestant work ethic, all this other stuff. But I knew intuitively that that really wasn't the case, that like I and Corey, we's here to do we, right? So so I had the blessing, and I, I view it this way, of writing the obituary and giving a eulogy. So Michelle, I showed up to the funeral in a black Buddhist prayer shawl, hair out, beads on, and just like in mourning, right? And one of my, it's funny now, but I was kind of pissed when it happened. He was like, why you look like somebody's granny right now? Like, because of my shawl. Uh-huh. Like, Nigga. Yeah. Right? <laughs> just like, all right, like, not not now, right? But yeah. like, thank you. I'll laugh in two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> but not right now, right? Um, and I did it in like his uncle. We were um, related on his father's side, um, but what like again? Time, family, chosen family, whatever. His uncle Den came up to me and was like, "I get it." I'm like, "Yeah, we're fellow free spirits." And my fellow free spirit got his wings unexpectedly. He died in his sleep. So it wasn't even like most of the deaths that I've experienced have been like seen. We knew it was coming. Like we didn't see this one coming. And so I was like, my fellow free spirit got his wings. And I, in tribute to him, am going to rep us. Right. right? So the lesson that I'm learning through his passing is that and I, I talked about this explicitly in my teaching practice. Michelle, I'm an elder now. Mm-hmm. This is a rite of passage. Mm-hmm. and the book that I've been lollygagging about, I need to tell the story, right? The, I don't know if I'm good enough to be, I need to do that. Yes. Tomorrow, yeah. I mean, this is what I said in my eulogy. 
How many times have you heard tomorrow is not promised and just thought, thought of it as a cliche? Mm-hmm. I now have a visceral understanding of somebody didn't, you know, because if you grew up in the Baptist church, how many times have you heard somebody didn't wake up this morning? Right. I now know what that means. Yeah. So given and there's a quickening that happens when you have a death so close to you. Um, I'm not afraid of death as much as I may have been because it's so present mm-hmm. and it's always there. We just choose not to see it. We talk about shadow, like the biggest shadow is when we out of here, right? So the lesson that I've been given is to continue to be in touch with the liberatory quality of the human spirit so that all people, like the um, the eulogy touched people so much that some people were like, man, I am, um, how do I get in touch with that freedom, man? I'm just like, mm. touch it, touch right. it. Right? It's there. So, mm-hmm. But if I don't, I played, um, I played this bowl at his eulogy, um, and he and I were huge Jimi Hendrix fans, right? So I played it nine times and paused after six, like tribute to if six were nine, all these things. So this is 450 years old, and it has such a resonance to it. And I played it, and people, some people heard the words, some people felt the bowl, some people felt the vibe, but. All people were touched by the freedom of expression that I offered in tribute to my loved one. So if I can walk the rest of my days in that freedom and loving place, then I can give people the opportunity to step into the fullness of the freedom of their life, as opposed to the shoulds and the oughts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing about Corey and the funeral and, and eulogy you offered and mourning, right, and the practice. Thank you for sharing sharing that. And I'm sitting here just so, yesterday I said, I'm, so, I'm just so in awe and just wonder about how connected I am with every being, like that blows my mind. And I'm sitting here, it's a similar feeling to that um, because I wasn't expecting to say that to this group I was teaching. I was not, it was just coming through and out like, wow, we're connected in this way, right? So what do we do with it? But it was coming from that place. Like I'm sitting here so grateful that the ancestors manifested you. Like it's the same, same feeling of like, wow, this happened, right? Um, <laughs> I don't know if that makes sense to you, but I feel that way. Um, and I'm just, I'm so grateful you're here and, and telling the truth and moving people in the way you are because we don't have time to wait. So I'm just deeply grateful for who you are in this world. And thank you for making space to, talk with me today, to be in conversation, to be with spirit in this way. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for the chance to be in community. And uh, however I can support you, you know, I got you. And thank you. I'll, I'll conclude by saying this. Thank you for living your truth unapologetically as well. I mean, you're not as brash. Like I'm totally not even brash, but I'm hip hop. You know what I mean? Like KRS one, right? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Just mm-hmm. like, whatever, like you don't like it, that's not my problem, right? Like I'm not here to put on like, you You are as direct, but a little bit more subtle. And so like fire and ice make a good team. So Wonder Twin Powers activate. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Reggie. Absolutely. I hope you enjoyed the episode. So, 
As you all may know, I have a new book out, Finding Refuge, Heart Work for Healing Collective Grief, published by Shambhala Publications. It was published on July 13th, 2021, and can be found anywhere where books are sold. Along with the book, you can join me for some offerings focused on finding refuge and focused on collective grief, ritual, and processing trauma, allowing it to move through so that we can get free. We'll explore the connection between grief and liberation. You can support the podcast Finding Refuge by telling your friends about it and rating it on iTunes. You can support my work in the world by becoming a patron on Patreon. You can find me there as Michelle C. Johnson, Skill in Action. I offer monthly Dharma talks, rituals, meditations, or movement practices. I hope you join me there. Take care. Be well, friends. Thank you.